as with the previous couple of podcasts, it's a bit weird uh, to like not mention the pandemic when recording yeah. in a pandemic. And as we record now, uh, the world is currently turned upside down and it would be a little bit weird to just kind of talk world building and conlanging without bringing up what's going on with regards to race relations in the US. So I just want to bring it up and say that, you know, Bill, I speak for myself and Bill here. I, I'm, I assume that, uh, <laughs> you know, we are on the side of Black Lives Matter here. What's going on in the States is disgusting and horrible. And it's deeply saddening to to see. Um, I wouldn't, I've been listening to a whole bunch of podcasters and YouTube people talk about this. And uh, I'm going to leave a whole bunch of links in the show notes for people who uh, want to help uh, uh, help out what's going on and who want to hear from like a non-white perspective, like from not mm-hmm. a bunch of white guys like me and Bill talk about what's going on. So I'm going to leave like MKB, MK, MKBHD's video. I thought it was great in in the show in the show notes. Go check that out. Have a listen to you know what the folks who go through this on the daily. Uh, are talking about um i'm going to drop some links to places you can go donate if you if you want to help um yeah just so just we stand in solidarity here with the people who are affected this is this is clearly horrible and uh i, I hope it gets fixed i don't hold out much hope it's going to get fixed but it, wouldn't it be wonderful if if it could get fixed i'm i've been really angry a lot of the last what was it, coming on ten days or something, um, really angry and upset at at the at the events themselves, but also the the bloody minded denial that that I see from people online and the. The, the whataboutery and the the fascist apologetics and the 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 defending police at all costs in, in the in the face of brutality and abuse that can't be rationally denied at, at this point mm-hmm. um I, I never thought it could really be denied but it's it's a different situation now the 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 volume of provocation and and abuse and violence that we we've seen recorded over the last over the last two weeks has been immense and it's been shared so widely um and i'm not entirely surprised but i am i am upset and i'm angry Hmm. and you know, I don't really have anything new or interesting to say, and I won't pretend that I do. But um, yeah, it's bad. Mm-hmm. Um, no, yeah, obviously, and we're we're not going to have new or interesting things to say about this. But like I said, I think it's important to say something uh, because yeah. saying nothing and just you know being all like this week in follow up is not that's not very empathetic, you know. This, um, this week in my fantasy world. This week in my fantasy world, exactly. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, I will say one thing I did learn, uh, and it's in the MKBHD video, and I want to... This came as a surprise to me uh, as a white person 
um, who's not really in in the black sphere, the black internet sphere. Um, the thing I've, I found really surprising is that lots of people are saying, uh, in this time, do your best to support like black creators, uh, listen to black content, etc. Um, mm-hmm. And intrinsically, I was like, that's a great idea. MKBHD, uh, a man of color himself, uh, was like, that's in theory, that's a really great idea. But just make sure you're doing it because you actually like what these people are producing uh because if you just go oh i must show solidarity let me subscribe to a whole ton of like black youtube channels and then maybe watch one of their videos and never watch them again that sends a signal to the youtube algorithm that this is a channel that people don't actually care that much about and it it will like de-rank them so uh just to talk about this in the realms of being a content creator because what what we are what i am um if you are going to show support, uh, please do make sure, or if you're going to show support in terms of like listening and subscribing and things like that, make sure it's genuine and it's not mm-hmm. just, uh, what's the word? Uh, perf- Tokenistic. Right. And perf- performative. That's, and, that's a better word. Yeah. And make sure it's not performative. Um, and obviously the best thing you can do, uh, I think, uh, from my perspective of being a white person, is just to do- donate uh, to causes to help mm-hmm. out. Um, and that's what I, uh, I'm, I'm doing. Um, so, and, and listen to black people and take your, your cues on your action and your behavior from them. Um, I, do, can I share a story of doing exactly that bill? Uh, yeah. So remember I was talking to you about, so, uh, in Ireland, there are, uh, Black Lives Matter protests going on today as we record, um, mm-hmm. or rather later in the day. And I was like, uh, I, I really want to go out, but I was really torn because I was like, uh, one thing, this is on one hand, this is the thing I really care about. And the other hand, like we're in the middle of a pandemic, right? So mass gatherings, no bueno, right? Um, mm. And then you go, which is better? You know, which, which, which one do you prioritize? So I talked to you a little bit about it. And then I was kind of like still on the fence after you gave me your take. And then I asked the captain to ask amongst her colleagues, her work colleagues, um, because there are people of color in that group. Uh, and they were like, look, it's not worth it. They kind of echoed what you were saying, Bill. Um, but they were like, look, it's not worth it. You're not, if you're in America, different story, but you're not in America, you're in Ireland, maybe help in a very, in a distant way. Don't, don't go on things. So I listened to, uh, I took, took person, it took a person of color to be like, that's your position. I'm like, yeah, do you know what? That's, that's it. It's not happening. So I'm not going out to protest today, even though I was going to uh, before. Mm. Um, so I think you're dead right. Yeah, listen to the people affected and just like, don't be defensive and just, just listen and process and, you know, deal and help people. It's, it's pretty simple. Yeah. And if, if, if you're made uncomfortable by it, deal with it. Just get over it. Like, <laughs> we're, we're not, we can't dismantle uh, oppressive systems while protecting the 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 feelings of the 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 people who benefit from the oppressive system uh white white supremacy won't be won't be taken apart without upsetting white people and that is fine get over it and uh, it, it is okay to, to to feel uncomfortable you know like to take it away from uh black lives matter for a second uh it does something that like you know i've more direct relationship with um when you think about, you know, English people, the relationship between English and Irish people. And when Irish people, you know, speak of uh, the oppression that happened in the past, that can make English people 
very uncomfortable and like mm-hmm. that's okay to feel uncomfortable in that instance i think uh as long as that uncomfort is not that discomfort is not turned into like aggression uh it's okay yeah. if that this discomfort is turned into like oh god that makes me terrible knowing that you know people you know people in my past may have done these things to you i need to listen and i need to make sure it doesn't happen again like use mm-hmm. the discomfort and channel it to positive ends as opposed yeah. to doing the sort of like animalistic getting uncomfortable then getting angry and defensive and then the whole cycle of hate just just perpetuates and that's no good yeah and at the same time uh consider anti-traveler racism in ireland and the direct provision in ireland mm-hmm. which is for, for international listeners who, who don't know it's uh how the the government treats asylum seekers in ireland um, they're they're essentially kept in in prison camps mm-hmm. um, under horrific conditions, and we should, as Irish people, feel uncomfortable about those two things. And it is right that we feel uncomfortable about those two things, but we should use that to do something to change them. And like what what you said about 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 England, that is a thing that I do feel angry about. But it's never a bludgeon for me to attack individual English people with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For um, sure. I know. Uh, pe- other people can feel however they feel about about their <laughs> about their situations. That's that's just kind of my my personal take on it. Um, but yeah, we we should feel uncomfortable about the systems we're complicit in. Yeah, for sure. Uh, particularly in the Irish thing, the the traveler thing. Like a uh, Jesus man growing up in the nineties, uh, where just like traveler racism was just the norm. Uh, yeah. And I, I, Jesus, I remember engaging in it, uh, and it just being like not even thinking about it, thinking twice about it. Um, mm. The yeah, because I remember like the the traveling some some members of the traveling community would like roll up into town or whatever, and I just, I distinctly remember peeping all people just being like, you don't talk to them, don't if they come in like we used to play pool in the bars when I was younger. It was like if they come in, you leave. You don't talk to them. You don't engage. They're all violent. You know insert all the horrific you know racial stereotypes going on there and it was just mm-hmm. like and i just completely just bought into that and then as an adult who i hope has become a little bit wiser as time goes on it, it makes me deeply deeply uncomfortable to think that i uh and my peers and everyone thought that way you know and again to to the to, to the earlier point that's fine it's okay to feel comfortable what's not okay is to go like to, to become defensive over that to be all like that makes me deeply uncomfortable i was deeply deeply wrong we were all deeply deeply wrong uh now we need to make things better um mm-hmm. and make things more inclusive you know uh so yeah and i sorry i don't mean to pull it away from black lives matter it's just that, like ob- obviously as a white person uh i don't you know this is not a, this is not my sphere so i'm trying to come at it from a uh yeah you're, you're trying to contextualize it with things that you you do understand right because I, I don't want to you know speak on behalf of of uh black people and the black lives matter movement because that's not my place um so i'm mm-hmm. just, so just like you said trying to contextualize it in my own experience so yeah it's 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 awful uh the video obviously uh, uh that sparked all this is just it's just horrific that that happens in a modern society and it just i've it's going to get political but like the response of the u.s government was just it's just it's barbaric, like it's just actually mm-hmm. legitimately 
barbaric. Like, I, it's, 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 yeah, it's not good. Anyhow, yeah. anyhow, we're going to attempt to do a show now. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to hopefully provide a little bit of entertainment, a little bit of fun uh, during these times. It's, it, there's no easy way to segue from this. Uh, but like I said, it, it would be remiss of us not to bring it up and just note that this is the moment in time that we live in. This month, uh, we are not going to do follow-up email um, because I want to top up Plato's Republic at the end of the show, uh, but we also got a ton of Bank of Artifexia stuff, so I'm going to forego the follow-up section to just talk about Bank of Artifexia, if that's okay with you, Bill. That is fine by me. So, uh, we let me grab the... I have to grab the letter here. Hold on. Oh, ASMR with Edgar. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So let me just pull out the business here. Okay, so the first letter we got in the mail comes via Sam. Um, I, I'm not going to... Well, actually, no, this person did explicitly say their first and second name, so I'm going to do it as well. Sam Katz. Um, comes from Sam Katz, and they wrote a lovely handwritten letter with lots and lots of stuff in it. I can't address everything, so I'm just going to pick out a few points. Uh, but they also included two... Uh, uh, money, money notes, two bank notes, uh, and they are the. They sent us a one Trinidad and Tobago dollar, and they sent us five Cuban pesos. Uh, the one Trinidad and Tobago dollar for anyone who wants to keep track of these things is valued at thirteen uh, cents, uh, euro, thirteen cents, fifteen cents USD. And twelve cents, Great British pound, um, and the five Cuban pesos. I, I I did a little bit of research on this yesterday. Apparently, it's um, it's pegged to the dollar, uh, so it's exactly the dollar value. So five Cuban pesos is exactly five U.S. dollars. Um, okay, which is four forty-three euro and three ninety-five Great British pounds. Uh, Sam goes on to say that the Cuban peso. There's actually two currencies at play in Cuba. Uh, one that's kind of local and one that's used just for tourists. Um, huh. One that's not pegged to the dollar and one that is pegged to the dollar. Apparently, I'm paraphrasing here and skim reading, so apologies, Sam, if I get this wrong. Um, but yeah, apparently it causes uh, an absolute nightmare uh, in terms of dealing with money in Cuba, which is just, I don't understand why they would do that, but uh, there you go. They do that. Yeah, and so, and then the other thing they were saying, just one interesting point they brought up, they said they were listening to episode number 51, uh, and they want to point out that uh, graffiti memes uh, have persisted for many thousands of years, and they bring up the, there's runic inscriptions in the Hagia Sophia. Do you know what that is, Bill? Yeah, um, it's in, it's in Istanbul, isn't it? I think it's a mosque. So apparently uh, there's inscriptions on that, near there, whatever, and experts believe these inscriptions say something to the effect of Haftan was here. <laughs> uh, which I just think is... You know there's an effect where you're like, the way we are now is not how people were before. And then every so often, you're like, you know, when someone says, you know, I was here, you're suddenly like, People are just the same, really. <laughs> like, we don't really change that much. You know, we have the same sensibilities, uh, which is going to be made clear in a second now, uh, you know, over time. It's just yeah. that you suppose the package they come in changes a little bit. 
Um, uh, absolutely. And then apparently uh, Sam also uh, says that apparently there's a subscription, uh, in, there is an inscription at Pompeii that reads something like, I screwed the bartender, which <laughs> <laughs> if, we're, if we're going to talk about how uh, ye olde people are like modern people, I think that exemplifies it right yeah. there. Um, 2000 year old bathroom stall graffiti. I know, right? Uh, so, oh, and I should, sorry, I should point out, I should point out that the, uh, on the Trinidad and Tobago dollar, uh, just for anyone who's curious, the sort of main feature on the, I think it's the obverse uh, of the banknote, is the actual central bank of Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, links oh, cool. in the show notes to the picture, you can go check it out. As far as my, yeah. you know, 10 minutes of research last night told me. And then on the Cuban peso, we have a chap called Antonio... Maceo uh, Grajales, maybe that's how you pronounce it. Uh, he's on the five Cuban peso, and I think he was um, the link. There's a link to the Wikipedia page in there, but I think uh, offhand, I think he was a member of uh, the revolutionary force, um, some some big wig in the revolutionary force. So that's who's who's on that. Um, cool. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sam Katz. And again, apologies that I can't read your I can't read your entire thing online. Just know that uh, it has been read and it has been appreciated. Um, there's a couple of things I, I want to check out here. Um, okay, there isn't much information here on on Wikipedia, so I won't I won't spend time looking it up elsewhere. I was just wondering what the bird on the Trinidadian is. Wait, what's the demonym for Trinidad and Tobago? I don't know. Do you know what else I always wondered? I wonder, do people from Tobago feel hurt that they're, like, second? I wonder stuff like that all the time, yeah. Yeah, I wonder, do they feel like it should be Tobago and Trinidad? I don't know. Anyway, apparently Trinidadian and Tobagonian is the demonym. So, there we go. But anyway, there's a bird on the one dollar note, and I was just wondering what it was. Some kind of some kind of water bird or heron or something some sort of waterfowl um, eh i don't think it's a fowl <laughs> more can, can of a wading bird can you define fowl what what is a fowl i i cannot all oh, right <laughs> but it, like a, um, goose, a goose is waterfowl you said last time fowls or birds belonging to one of two biological orders namely the game fowl or land fowl the galliformes i think that means chicken shaped um and the waterfowl the anseriformes, so that's I think that means goose shaped. Um, yeah, okay, so it's it's those two orders. Hmm. So yeah, the, Hag- the Hagia Sophia uh, is not. It used to be a mosque. Sorry, it was a mosque in Ottoman times. It's now a a museum, but it's yeah, it's a big famous building. Um, and on the on the graffiti thing, I read somewhere that they found in like a cave or something. Uh, Norse era graffiti. Did I did I talk about this before? Possibly, but go for it again. Um, and they could see that it was there, but they couldn't actually get up to it to to read it properly. And it took them ages to figure out how can they get up to to see this without disturbing the site. Um, you know what, what is it that was written up there? Uh, how can we how can we gather this data without destroying it? And eventually, mm. they figured it out and they got up there and the graffiti read, read "This is high." This is high. Yeah, because it was like up really high in the cave. Oh, as in H I H I G H. Yeah. Class. Class. <laughs> so, like, the Vikings, the Vikings were posting as well. 
I think, based on our discussion from last time, I think it's safe to say that everyone always was posting. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's that's really cool. Uh, is that your uh, is that your fact check corner done? Th- th- those are my those are my responses to to Sam Katz. Yeah, or and cool. to the the issues raised therein. So the next thing we got in the mail for Bank of Artifexia comes via an anonymous person. There was no letter, and as far as I can see, no markings on the like the the envelope. Uh, now, to be fair, though, Address Pal does this thing where they wrap the envelope in like a bunch of their own sticky tape, so maybe they covered it. I don't know. So I don't know who you are, person. I'm really sorry. Uh, in future, always try and send a little written note, whoever, just so we can identify you. Um, so this one comes from Anon, and Anon <laughs> sends uh, sends the Bank of Artifacts here twenty Polish zloty. I'm sure I'm pronouncing zloty wrong, but. That's how I've heard Irish people pronounce the words Lottie. Um, <laughs> and uh, again, links are in the show notes if you want to go check out uh, the Polish uh, Polish coinage, or not Polish coinage, Polish money in, in all its glory. Uh, the dude on the obverse is a chap called King Boleslaus I, the brave. Uh, and then on the reverse, there's a picture of kind of like a, a cool ancient coin looking thing. And apparently that's a coin from his reign uh 20 Ooh. polish 20 polish lati is 451 in euro 509 us dollars 402 great british pound uh so that's a really handy little conversion uh between polish lati and the us dollars it's just it's just basically divided by four i like that it's good mm, nice. um and so this person also sends us <laughs> They sent us a herald again. Links from the show notes. It's a heraldic scroll and map of family names and origins of Ireland. It's a giant f- fold-out poster thing uh, that has all the coat of arms for every family purportedly uh, in Ireland. So, oh link, wow, that is big. Link, it's very big. I put a banana in there for scale, so you could see what's going on. Uh, yeah. the, the a giant banana off the coast of Wexford. There is a giant banana off the coast of Wexford. There is indeed. Uh, so you go check out the show notes, folks. I want to get our takes on our family's coat of arms here, Bill. Uh, now, mm-hmm. obviously, I am uh, nominally a Grunwald, uh, which is a decidedly non-Irish name. So I'm not going to find that there. But uh, my mother's family were called Murray. And there is indeed a Murray coat of arms. And uh, for those who can't, uh, go and check out the, the picture. Um, the Murray Court of Arms is a white shield. I'm going to get all the heraldic terms wrong here. I'm really sorry, folks. Uh, a white shield with like a black lozenge type thing. And then three uh, black wolves, dogs, with their tongues sticking out, pointing to the left. Uh, I, I think I think the names are written below the shields, not above. Oh, no. Oh, you're right, Bill. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, oh. God damn. Okay, so then the Murray family shield is real sucky. <laughs> the Murray family shield is uh, a blue background, three uh, three golden or yellow stars, and then what appears to be some sort of, I don't know, Stargate in the middle. It's really naff. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. It's oh man! It, it go to the go to the links of the show. It's like the one that's that's Pierce that now we know as is being Pierce is so much cooler 
than the one that's Murray. So I don't like it at all. Bill, what do you think of your one? Your one is hella busy. <laughs> it, it is. It is a bit busy, isn't it? Um, okay, I, I don't know how to how to blazon this correctly. So I'll say the top left mm-hmm. is three uh, lions, jewel, rampant on a white background. Three red lions on a white background. Mm-hmm. Um, the top right is a yellow background and a, a white hand holding a blue, kind of like a Maltese cross, but the, 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 the bottom p- part of the cross is like just a, a stick. Mm. Um, the bottom left is a red background with a hand holding a yellow axe and the bottom right is a white background with a black deer. And yellow horns? An antelope? Can we, could we say, is there any way we could call that a goat? A goat is probably more accurate, yeah. That's great, because that fits into, with artifacts in lore, of trying to shove goats into everything. (laughs) (laughs) That Uh, is, that is hella busy. Your one actually looks like a proper coat of arms. The Murray one looks just like a a whole bunch of meh. Um, Yeah. I like I mean... I wonder. I wonder whose coat of arms this is. You know, I'm always. I'm always a bit skeptical about 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 arms. I was go. I was going to bring up, but I. I. I did. I, I wanted to frame it in such a way not to make a non feel bad. Uh, but those shops in Dublin where you can buy things like this, they tend not to be the most reputable places in the world. Um, mm-hmm. And they tend to be just like very tourist trappy. So yeah, like like I said, I don't know if this would be like the official Murray coat of arms or the official McGrath coat of arms. My point is more that there isn't such a thing. That they're they're all just like some some guy called Murray had that coat of arms. It's not that for everyone who's called Murray. Like you may not be descended from him. I may not yeah, be descended yeah. from this particular McGrath. Exactly. Yeah. Now, and that's um, not to take away from the fact that that heraldry is super interesting. Sure, exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, go check out the show notes, folks. Uh, have a look at some of the coat of arms and just, again, just just weep uh, for the fact that Murray could have been so badass, but it's not. Do you have the poster handy? I do. I have it literally here. ASMR with Edgar. Um, can you tell me, if you find the Murray coat of arms, go down two and one to the right... Because I can see the the arms, but I can't actually see the name okay. here. Hold on, hold on, bear with me now. Oh jeez, I'm gonna have to like take over the whole floor here. Hold on. Ah, oh, it's right. Give me those instructions again. Murray, go down two. So you go to Pierce, then Ross, and it's the one to the right of Ross. What's that name? Okay, hold on, hold on. Rossiter. <laughs> Rossiter. Okay. That's the one that's a a green alligator on a white background, right? Yeah, the green alligator on a white background, yeah. What business does an Irish family have having an alligator on their well, no, on fair. their arm oh sugar. But on their arms. Fair enough, but like Rossiter. Is Rossiter an Irish name? That seems like it's got some foreign influence there. Ah no, it's an Irish name, I'm sure. Is it? Sound it it sounds Irish to me. I, man, I don't think it sounds Irish. Like it's, uh, it sounds similar of a similar thing to like, you know, Fitzpatrick, you know, which is That's not extremely a really Irish. Irish. 
No, that's that's like uh, that's got Anglo stuff in. Like Fitz is a it's a if you have Fitz in your name, you're of Anglo descent. Uh, Look, it's Norman. If you've been here since since eleven sixty or whatever, you're 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 fine. Right, right, right. But what I'm saying is like there's a difference between say O'Riordan and Rossiter. Do you know like right, it's they, not Gaelic. It's not Gaelic, right? So they sound like there's some like outside influence coming in. So maybe uh, that's why there is a crocodile on the coat of arms because one does not find crocodiles in Ireland, but maybe one finds them in I don't know France. So crocodiles in France? Where, I don't think so. Where do crocodiles live, Bill? <laughs> like North Africa. Actually, I think all over Africa. Huh. Yeah, okay, no, you're right. I don't know what business uh, uh, the crocodile has there. It's fun, though. It's good. They, they live, hold on, crocodiles live throughout the tropics in Africa, Asia, the Americas, and Australia. There's, there why, am, why am I associating crocodile with France? Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> there's, a, there's, that, there's a fashion label that's from France that uses the, cro- <laughs> the, cro- the crocodile. <laughs> That is fantastic. This is is all staying in the show. Anywho. That is fantastic. (laughs) What's that label called? Uh, I think it's, is it Lacoste? Yeah, it's Lacoste. In French. Oh, Edgar. What? (laughs) That is hilarious. Sorry for anyone who who can hear my dog losing her mind downstairs as well. Oh, man, no. That's, is that, is that, uh, is Bonnie? Bonnie? Yeah, that's Bonnie. That's oh. Bonnie. I don't know if the listeners can hear that. She's losing her mind downstairs. Someone's come to the door. How How is Bonnie? Bonnie is pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. Her uh, Her allergies are under control, I think. Um, and she's enjoying everyone being at home. Oh. Or she's enjoying me being at home all the time. Oh, that's really nice. And she's getting lots more walks than she's used to. Hmm. Um, will you say hello to Bonnie for me? I will. I will tell Bonnie that Edgar says hello. No one else in your family, just Bonnie. Okay. <laughs> Long okay. Anyway, so that becomes uh, via Anon. Thank you, Anon, for sending in the scroll. Yeah, that's cool. And the Polish slotty. That's very very cool. Uh, now the third, the third and final thing in Bank of Arvexia, uh it comes via another Anon. Again, there was no letter. Please do send letters if you can, because it just helps to identify. Uh, and also, like, it's it's a cool connection moment, you know? You'd be like, oh, this is another human being on the other side of the planet. This is cool. Um, but this comes from Anon. There is no money per se, but what they did said, they, they made two Lego figurines of us. Uh, <sighs> and if you, if you click, if you click on the show notes there, you'll see it, Bill. There's me uh, and there's you in, in Lego form <laughs> <laughs> with, with a banana for scale. And there's also a little Lego map of the world and two little Lego US banknotes. So, like, it is technically a contribution to the Bank of Artifexia. Uh, Bill is where... Bill has a sword for reasons that I don't fathom, but I'm on board with. Uh, and he's also wearing this, like, red jackety thing, which reminds me of your smoking jacket from the last time. So I think that looks pretty yeah. good. Uh, I'm wearing a dapper suit. I can get on board with that. And I believe the font that they chose uh, to write our names in is the actual, like, font from the videos. So fair play. It looks like they actually did a good bit of kind of work to make this happen. Uh, So, yeah, Bill and Edgar in Lego form. And they've made a cameo. They'll be making a cameo in one of the upcoming videos. 
<laughs> that is awesome. That is, and whenever we see each other in person again, if ever the the end of the world ends, uh, <laughs> I will. Uh, I'll pass you on your figure. But for now, they're just going to live on my shelf. That is so cool. So thank you, Anon. That's really cheered me up. Cheered you up. Now we 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 do we suspect we suspect uh, because of email correspondence correspondence that this Anon may be a chap called Samuel, but we can't. Yes. We can't confirm that for sure because there is a possibility they might be the previous Anon. One of the two Anons is a Samuel, uh, but we don't know which one. But the Balance of probability is that it's this anon. So uh, if it is, thank well, you, Samuel. unless unless Samuel's package has yet to come, I, th- I think I think Lego fits the clues that he he provided. It does, but you, like you you bring up a good point. What happens if there's another package package in transit? Yeah. Oh, I mean, like they mm. could. Uh, we've had people saying that they were going to send us currency from their fictional worlds. I mean, that would definitely fall under the clue of like something that's marginally related to Bank of Artifacts. Yeah, <laughs> that could be interesting. That's true. We just who knows? Who knows who Samuel is? No one, Bill. Not even Samuel. <laughs> Not even Samuel. Uh, but that that is the that is genuinely awesome. Anon Samuel, whoever you are, I and I loved getting that in the mail because there's a moment of like, has some company sent me something I don't really want here? Because I was like, what even is this? And then it's like. Because there's um, the actual figures themselves obviously don't look exactly like me and Bill because they're Lego. So I'm like, why do I have, <laughs> have random Lego? And then uh. I took out the base plates that had our names on. I'm like, oh my God, someone made us into Lego. This is awesome. I had so much fun that morning. So thank you, Anand. Uh, so listeners, we just had massive 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 technical difficulties uh we recorded some of this section and then just everything broke and now we're going to record again heads up i sometimes find that re-recorded sections don't have quite the same feel as um getting your sort of first impressions um so yeah let's we'll do some world building again i know what (laughs) you have this month but you want to tell everyone else what you have this month certainly edgar so we're back in ikerm and once again, I've got a letter concerning the Tamar Company and its exploits in Hoytan. Mm-hmm. And I'll just get straight into it. Benvin, your letter arrived at Depot last night. Should this reply find its way to you in a similar time, I make that an eight-day round trip from your tower in Mearsphere to my cot on the frontier, and back. I thus concede our wager settled, and you may consider payment delivered, awaiting only my presence in the city. I confess I am not sorry to find myself the lesser in this matter, as my joy at our progress outweighs by far the stake I place against you. As to professional matters, the state of my honour is less certain. The progress here has been slower than was hoped, as I cautioned in my reports when this expedition was first planned. The blame does not lie on the scouts, as I know many on the boards and in the wardrooms are no doubt speculating, at least on no scouts other than myself. As the first company man to observe these lands, and the author of the reports, upon the intelligence of which the appraisements were calculated, 
What blame can be assigned for this region's deficiencies thus far must surely be assigned to me and the poor quality of my intelligence or my inability to communicate its significance. I remind you again, nonetheless, of my early and continued pessimism regarding this venture. The Hoitani are much as I found them twenty years ago. I needn't describe their character again for you. The company consensus seemed to be that enough material tribute would be sufficient to sway Hoitani chiefs from their position of reserve into acceptance of a closer partnership with the company. This was never to succeed, as I insisted from the start. The Abeski mind and the Hoitani mind are too dissimilar. This is not to denigrate them. You understand that my respect for their nation is considerable. They simply do not share fundamental concepts of value that are apparent to us, and the benefits of our way of life are perhaps incomprehensible to them. They care not for a letter carried from Mirsphere and back in eight days. The bribery and force that work so well in the Anches or beyond the belt are simply not persuasive here. After the late debacle in that western camp, I fear our progress will be slowed further. The destruction of that settlement was of no benefit to Tamar. The Hoitans see little, if any, distinction between the companies. The work achieved by our scouts, against the unreasonable expectations of the boards, was highly promising, now rendered useless. The bumbling of a Valdian captain has undone our project to an immeasurable degree. I feel no joy in this vindication. I am galled to see the Earthani, really, Benvin, the Earthani, trade with the Hoitani more successfully than we. Our best course to salvage this region is to allow our scouts continued liberty in managing their own affairs. To an individual, they are as disgusted with the Valdini massacre as I, and are themselves best placed to repair their own contacts among the camps. Failing that, a further deployment of force, while regrettable, will yield the most profitable returns in the least time. I know the boards grow hungry. Please communicate all I have disclosed here to the relevant boards and members. I will continue to direct our efforts and update you through the usual channels. In friendship, Servet Teovdien, Depot Commander, Hoitan. Cool. Um, that actually, my my initial criticism about the writing style in this, I'm going to retract it slightly. On second hearing, I don't think it's as dense and like archaic, archaically written uh, as yeah. uh, as I first heard. I actually think on second hearing, I, I yeah, I'm going to withdraw that. I I think I read it a lot better that time around. Um, you certainly made it through that second paragraph without problems. <laughs> Yeah, that's a hell of a sentence. Yeah, li- um, listeners who can go go check the show notes and go to the second paragraph and just look at that monstrosity of a sentence in the in the second paragraph. It's uh, it's long, and to my mind, we discussed this before as well. To my mind, it requires a little bit more punctuation. But Bill has uh, funny views about commas. <laughs> Idiosyncratic. Um, Idiosyncratic views about commas. Yeah. Um. Yeah, uh, I think I think that went a lot better that time. Uh, th- my frustration with the technical difficulties we experienced, I channeled that into the character of Servet and his 
his uh, frustration with the the company's unreasonable demands. You did. Uh, now, given that my opinions have changed slightly, can you outline what you were going for? Because my opinion has also changed of that. Okay. Um, so, just as, as a summary, this is a letter from Servit to Benvin, uh, who are both members of the Tamar Company. Servit is the depot commander in Hoytan. He's overseeing the, the uh, Tamar Company's ventures here. And um, he is, the first bit, they're just discussing a, a personal wager they had about how quickly they could communicate. Um, and Benvin won. And the rest of the letter is is discussing why the why the expeditions in in Hoitan and the the attempts to to do business in Hoitan have not been successful. Um, Servant is of the opinion that the the company did not really understand the Hoitani well enough and tried to apply uh, tactics that were not relevant and were not likely to succeed. Um, he is pushing blame away from the scouts, um, who I've talked about in, in previous writings, um, that they they are not to blame. He he thinks that their approach is, is correct. Uh, the blame lies with the unreasonable expectations of the company and with uh, another company, the Valdien, um, for massacring a Hoitani camp and undoing the trust that any of the companies had, had built uh, among them. And to rescue the, the region, he first of all suggests that they should allow the, the scouts to continue as they are, to keep rebuilding the, the trust that, that they had made and the contacts they had made among the Hoitani, and failing that, that a further deployment of force would be the best way to get more profits. That's, that is a summary, for sure. Uh, specifically, though, you said you were after the sort of main point of the of the writing was to talk about the colonial mindset yes um so what i was trying to get across here was how th- this author sees himself as being sympathetic uh, and sees himself as having respect and ha- having a uh, considerable regard i think is the, the phrase he uses um my respect for their nation is considerable um but the, the 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 structure he works within necessitates that they the Hoitani um are are an obstacle to the, the the goals of the company, which is to get more profit, to to get more from trade, to get more from exploiting the resources here of of their of their land, um, and you know in this in this paragraph, you know I. The Abeski mind and the Hoitani mind are too dissimilar. This is not to denigrate them. You understand that my respect for their nation is considerable. That's a, a classic kind of like, oh no, like we're, 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 we're different, but I respect them. It's kind of like mealy-mouthed um, bigotry. Um, they, they don't share the way we are. They just can't think the same we do, and they don't understand our concept of progress. And he refers to this idea that he can get a letter back to the city and, and, and it can make a round trip of eight days and they're just not capable of understanding the progress that that we're achieving. And they don't understand what we're offering them. And so my initial take on this was that I mentioned that I think that you've kind of failed to portray that. Uh, because from mm-hmm. my perspective, when reading it, I was like, he actually 
uh, this guy Sir Servit actually comes across as being kind of like a you know air quotes good colonialist here, like actually does genuinely care. Uh, mm-hmm. And my reason for this was the at the start of the third paragraph, you're right, the Hoitani are as much as I found them 20 years ago. And I was like, this is a guy who's had contact with the Hoitani, has maybe, you know, grown to see them genuinely as people and like not as just things to be owned. Uh, and so I thought that was a negative point you're writing. But then it occurs to me again on second reading that uh, what makes this kind of good and kind of a cool bit of writing is that one can read several things into this so like everything you say you can definitely get from the text that this is a person who is just like totally dismissive of other cultures and sees them as a thing to be owned uh but you can also i think read into it a person who genuinely does think that these people are people but also is like well come here we need the land and we need the power um and i think that makes it complex uh, and I think that's yeah. a, that's a pro point and not a negative point that I uh, originally outlined. And again, I realize I'm sorry, listeners, oh, you. You, got to, you got to hear, hear none of this discussion before, but it did occur, <laughs> and it has influenced how I'm thinking now. Uh, so I, yeah, I retract my negative point. I think that's really cool. I think it's cool that you can both hate and empathize with the colonial uh, antagonist here uh, or protagonist, depending on your view. You know, I think that's really. That's really complex and good. I mean, like, I, I definitely would, would see him as the bad guy here, or as, as a bad guy here. But I think, I, I suspect that the the motivations of colonizers, not always, but often, was something like this. It was like, it wasn't, these people are, are uniformly subhuman, and they are there to be exploited. There were definitely people who did think that, but... Um, like the the concept of the of the white man's burden allows the colonizer to to portray themselves as the good guy, mm-hmm. whatever the whatever the material reality of it is, and it, it enables them to ignore a, a lot of the the repercussions in, in reality. Um, and I think th- this is in no way intended to be a defense of colonialism. Oh yeah, um, no, sure. But like, I think it is kind of more interesting that way to rather than the bad guys are are evil and deliberately evil it's that the bad guys are evil but they they don't see themselves as that and yeah. the structures that they they exist within and and they don't critique or what are a, a contributing factor there everyone is the hero of their own story yeah the way it works yeah for sure the only other thing that i think it's worth bringing up again uh was is the boards and wardrooms part here uh I was, yeah. will you talk a little bit about the structure of the companies here with regards to wardrooms boards what they are how they function etc well th- this is just kind of a figure of speech when he says the boards and the wardrooms that means the 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 opinion within the company and the people who make decisions within the Tamar company, the boards being literally like boards of directors and things of different projects and of different uh, arms of the overall company. And uh, wardroom is, I, I've taken that from the, the Royal Navy, the British Royal Navy, historically, uh, possibly in other navies as well, I'm not sure. But wardrooms was where the officers ate aboard a ship, aboard a vessel. Um so the the captain had had his had his wherever he ate um possibly the gun room 
I can't remember exactly now. It's been a while since I've been I've been thinking about this sort of stuff. Uh, and then the you know the regular sailors ate in their mess or just wherever. Um, but the wardroom was where the officers messed. Um, so what that means is that the opinions of the people making the decisions aboard vessels, what the officers of the of the ships in the Tamar Company believe. Um, so it's kind of like that. The, the oh, it means it's a figure of speech for the overall opinions within the company. And you said you made a really nice analogy before. You said it, it's like when the president of say of the U.S. speaks, uh, it's often framed as in like the White House reports X or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. and that's not, not necessarily just the president himself, but the administration, the the executive sure. branch. That'll be said. The White House has issued a statement uh, as one example. Yeah. Do, do you have like a controlling person of a company or is it like, is there literally like a, a group of people, like like a like a literal board of directors or whatever? Um, yeah, no, there's, there, there's is, not like a single guy. There's not like a, there's not a, like a single uh, Xanatos or anything in, in, in charge of, in, in charge of the company. And is there, is there any element of democracy there that like, like they're voted from within the company or is it... Uh, that, that that who is voted for? Uh, I mean, the leaders of the like the people who I don't know the, the upper group of people who run things in the companies. Like, are they voted from within, like democratically? Because I can see organizations doing it like that, or yeah, um, or is it pure just capitalism? That's a, that is a good question. Um, Thank you. <laughs> I haven't thought about that uh, off the top of my head. I would say eligibility is based on investment. Right. Um, but maybe positions within boards are voted for after that basis. Oh, okay. So if you give a couple, uh, a couple of million, uh, you 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 can put your name in the hat in running for. Yeah, you you will be a member of of a board or right. whatever. But then, what role you 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 take, um, on that board or on that committee or whatever will be voted for. Maybe. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. Might be an interesting uh, thing to write about. Uh, it would be actually, yeah. Yeah, cor- <laughs> that's what people definitely want to hear in their fantasy uh, fiction, like corporate structures. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder. I wonder. Will Bill write more about the cool monsters in Ecare in this this month? <laughs> like, well, here are the points of protocol for conducting a budget review in the Tamar Company. That it, that genuinely does fill fill me with joy. Uh, <laughs> I, again, I don't know if it fill everyone with joy, but it fill me with joy. Um, so yeah, yeah. Uh, that this is a weird experience this this month, man, because it's like I went from not really digging it too much to kind of digging it uh, quite a lot, just purely on second reading. Um, I think that, that 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 was pretty cool. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I think I I think I really read it a lot better. The, the second time around. I guess that means we need to have technical issues every single time we record. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Will we move on to my video? Let's move on to the video. So I have made a new video that's not an Atlas mapping video. So it's something that we could uh, talk about a little bit. Uh, that video is called Fantasy Mining Where Metals Are Found on Fantasy Worlds. Uh, Bill, have you watched it? Do you have any? I have thoughts? watched it. I I did have thoughts. Um, nothing really to question. I thought it was very straightforward, very easy to understand. Um, I 
find it really bizarre that water will deposit minerals in places. Like, you get uranium because it, the water dissolves the uranium and carries it somewhere and deposits it, deposits it somewhere. That's crazy to my mind. I mean, I still find the concept of just going to a river and finding gold to be just the most bizarre thing ever. That is pretty bizarre, yeah. You know, given that it's the thing that we value, it's like, oh my god, gold. Like, And you're like, but you could just you can just get your own. Like, just, just go to the river. <laughs> like, it's really weird. Uh, the thing I found bizarre as well is, like, the amount of places that produce uh, precious metals. Before the video, I wasn't aware of how, just how abundant gold can be. It's crazy. Really? Yeah. It's everywhere, man. Hmm. You'd think gold is really rare. It's kind of not, though. Jordan, there's something that stresses me out. Uh, sure. Thinking about how metal isn't renewable. And mm. like, like when stuff rusts, or if if you imagine someone like making something from metal and then like they they make it wrong, like the, a smith makes a mistake and then the metal has to be discarded. That that like I think about that and it's like, well, that's that's a useless now. That's just total waste. You can't do anything with that. Um, yeah, that kind of that kind of freaks me out a little thinking about that sometimes. Yeah, I think, yeah, we we kind of tend to think of, like, fossil fuels as being things that we'll run out of and that would be a problem. But we can, yeah. like, we can kind of run out of everything. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a bit of a problem. I mean, technically, technically, uh, we, w- we won't run out of, nominally, we won't run out of iron because that can be deposited in the forms of meteorites. Uh, that can come from... <laughs> but I, I don't think that would be economically significant now, to be fair. Uh but yeah, no, you're dead right. Running out of running out of everything is a bit it's a bit mad. Like, um, yeah. So the only thing I was going to bring up about this that is that is kind of going to be addressed in a follow up, but not to any great length, was to talk about the idea of fictional resources because um, overwhelmingly the response was, "What do you do uh, if you don't have a you know an element that's on the periodic table, for example? You have some fantasy." thing that you've made up uh how would you go about plotting that uh i have my opinions do you have any thoughts on that bill um i mean it would mean depends specifically on on what it is um did it come from as you said a meteorite is it is it space stuff um i mean i can think of examples and ideas and things from from fiction um i think there's something where there's a there's a resource that is like you mine it from the earth, but it's the body of a dead god that that crashed mm. into the planet, um, which is extremely metal. <laughs> Let me just is. say that is extremely metal. Um, I don't know. Uh, Final Fantasy VII had that whole like Mako. The macro energy, yeah, which is like a kind of a kind of a metaphor for for oil, I guess. Um, but also, like, if oil was like literal life force of the planet, um, <clears throat> give give me your thoughts and help me contextualize mine. Uh, your thoughts are are kind of my thoughts, except maybe just a slightly better form because I've had to think about about the Q and A uh, for the follow up video. Um, I think the the way to do this is to make analogs with real life materials uh Mm -hmm. so in the example of your fallen god type thing uh assume that it's like your uh, your fantasy material coming from this god is organic in nature 
uh, and so then have it crop up in places where uh, organic uh, real life resources crop up. So where coal crops up, bits of your god will crop up too. Um, yeah, like make it analogous to a real world thing. So if it's some fantasy metal, make it crop up where real life metals crop up. Um, and then even if you're getting your resource from like non-standard places like uh, space, for example, like let's say your resource exists in space. Think of ways in which we like extract stuff from the air. Uh, maybe uh, an analogous extraction system can occur up in space, for example, uh, if mm-hmm. that's where your resource is or the same thing with water. Um, look at how, look at all the places in which we extract stuff from the earth. See if any of that is comparable to your fantasy material and then just make it analogous that way. Um, yeah. I think that's the best way of doing it. I think that's the way, like with the macro example, I think that's kind of the way uh, that most fantasy does it. You know, like like you said, it's analogous to oil. And If I remember uh, Final Fantasy correctly, it kind of, it felt very oily. Like the big plants look like big kind of oil extraction yeah. plants, you know. Um, yeah. So that's 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 my thoughts. Agree? Yeah, broadly. I mean, I don't think it has to be um, like, oh, you, you better make sure you find it in the places you find coal um, because the, like, it, it would have formed in a different way. You know, like if it's, if it's, if it's from like an impact or something, that would be different to like sediment from, uh, from swamps or whatever. Uh, but yeah, like it's, 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 it's a useful thing to, to, to think about that in, in terms of the process. Sure. And I, I guess it's more of a kind of like constraint to impose upon yourself. So you're not left going, well, I guess I can put the Gaudium anywhere and then you're suddenly like oh now i have no rules and i don't know what to do i'm crippled by yes yeah. uh it's good yeah. I, I think that's a handy way of uh of just constraining stuff and also like we kind of like we kind of intrinsically know what like a uh, a coal mine looks like so if you associate it with that kind of it gives us something to think about um or something to be familiar with whereas if you're i don't know extracting your fantasy uh, element from some bizarre thing that has no real life analog it can be very hard to understand what the hell's going on um yeah so so that could help as well um yeah but that's all i had on that bill what are your favorite fictional resources or kind of fun ones you can think of uh my least favorite uh, yeah i can start with my least favorite uh my least favorite is unobtainium uh as presented from, from avatar from avatar because I didn't realize this at the time, but once it was pointed out to me, I was like, that's terrible. Um, apparently, Unobtainium was kind of like a sort of ubiquitous name used in sci-fi across the board for like just like unspecified uh, material that's probably mm-hmm. hard to get at, has some sort of powers or whatever. Um, but it was never meant to be like a literal singular resource. And then Avatar comes along and was like, no, Unobtainium is actually this sort of thing and it's found here. And that kind of like, I don't know, kind of like inadvertently retcons a lot of science fiction. You're kind of like, just just don't call it that. Um, the analogy that's made is kind of like, imagine if suddenly like you, you make the MacGuffin a thing, you know, an actual item of your world is is the MacGuffin. And you're like, but no, we've been using that to talk about you know, broadly across the genre. You can't then just take it, put it in the thing. It just, it's very distracting. 
Um, I other f- uh, Jesus, what is what are resources in fantasy? Do you have any examples, Bill? Another some in in Mistborn and Mistborn. There's like a couple of fictional metals there um, that have kind of cool fantasy origins. We we talked about Mistborn before. For people who haven't uh, heard my opinions on this, just like we'll quickly li- line them out again. Uh, I think I've only read the first book. I think it's class. Uh, although I I find that Sanderson spends a little bit too much time telling us about all the metals that are being used. So like there's a fight scene going on, and then he's all like. I, Bill shot pewter into his pinky and then did a spinning back kick while you know ex- burning copper in his core and it's like there's too much talk about the system um, whereas I, I think when I was reading the book I would have really liked them to, to have a little exposition scene where they talk about how metals have this metal magical property and then just like leave that and then just write the fight scenes as if they were fight scenes and only make occasional reference to the metals, but I felt like Sanderson was constantly going on about like pewter burning here and copper burning there, and then like, oh no, running out of silver to burn there, and it's just like too much metal talk. Brandon, was my criticism of the of the work. Fair enough. Um, but I did find it cool and kind of novel that like metals have this mystical, uh, magical property to them, um, mm-hmm. and it kind of makes sense because like we we kind of sort of ingest metals the whole time. And they are good for us. So it's kind of taking something that happens IRL and just elevating it to fancy level, which I think is pretty cool. Do you mean like that French guy who ate a plane or? He ate a plane. Yeah. He ate a 747. No, it was like a Cessna. Wait, wait, no. He ate an actual like macro plane, like not like a toy plane. Yeah. He ate an entire aircraft. Yes. What even is life? What are you talking about? This happened? Yes. Uh, he, uh, Michel, Michel Lotito, um, he, he was like famous for, for eating stuff. And like he, he, he'd eat like, he, he would eat like bikes and things. And uh, sorry, uh, a Cessna 150. It, t- it took him roughly two years to eat the, the Cessna 150. Oh, I'm so interested. Like, and did he just like grind it down into small, small parts and eat it? Because uh, there's no Latito's way. Latito's method for eating all of this metal was to break it into small pieces before attempting to eat it. He then drank mineral oil and continued to drink water while swallowing the metal bits. This acted as a lubricant to help the metal slide down his throat. What? Like. Why? Why? I, I have so many, so many questions. He had a pair of skis. He had a coffin. <laughs> Jeez, after Cessna, the ski seemed almost like normal. Yeah. <laughs> Cessna. Oh, that's gas. Uh, I meant more, Bill, that we ingest like iron and zinc. Uh, and, I know. <laughs> and that kind of thing, you know. <laughs> but geez, a plane. That's nuts. That is absolutely crazy. Um, I- I've been watching, this isn't really a resource per se, but I've been watching True Blood. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a new series we're watching, and uh, I kind of like the way vampire blood is used as a narcotic. That's pretty cool. Not a resource, but it's a thing. Oh, that's, that's kind of cool. Um, yeah, what, what about you? Other than Mistborn, have you got any other ones? <sighs> Specifically metals, um, I guess adamantium. Oh, yes, of course. Um, I've always thought that was kind of cool. Just, I mean, it doesn't really make much sense. If it's indestructible, how do you work it? 
Um, yeah, that's fair. Maybe it comes <laughs> out of the ground in claw-like forms. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know, but I just—I've yeah, always thought that was that was kind of cool um, as a concept. Um, what else is there? Uh, not a metal, but dust from from Dune is is kind of kind of interesting. Or not oh, dust, yeah. spice, spice, spice from yeah. Dune. Um, the spice Don't, melange, and dust, I know it, it doesn't really do a lot to explain it in the books. It just kind of like tells you about it, and then you just kind of got to figure out. I think it's, it's it's really kind of weird, um, mm. which I liked. Uh, I have issues with Dune, but that's not one of them. Uh, dust is from the Golden Compass. Yes, it's from from yeah. the His Dark Materials thing. His Dark Materials. Um, that's it. That's that's not even a resource though. That's just I don't know. It's no, it's angels. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Isn't, isn't uh, that, or something like it's 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 something really weird. It turns out to be. Um, I can't remember exactly. Um, have you seen the 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 BBC production of that? I have. I've seen it to an extent. I don't know. Have I seen? It, have, am I up to date with it? But yes. Like like the recent one. The recent one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's real good. Uh, I I enjoy it. I can't say I am. There's. It falls into the same f- fantasy as kind of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Narnia. And that sort of, I, I don't know how to describe what it is I'm after here, but that sort of fantasy is not massively appealing to me. Where it's like uh, talking animals and just Narnia vibes. If I get Narnia vibes off of fantasy, mm. I'm kind of like, oh. That's interesting because it is... It is specifically intended to be an anti-Narnia, so it's interesting that like you have to have some of the similarities for it to be an effective antidote. Sure, um, exactly, uh, and and those similarities make me kind of like. Now I enjoyed watching a TV series, but it's not something where I'm like, I definitely need to like read these books over and over again and watch yeah. all the series. It's something where I'm kind of like, oh, that's fun because I enjoy the fantasy series. I've enjoy, I enjoy fantasy, but it's not something where I'm like, this mm. is outstanding. Um, I don't know. There's something about Narnia-like stuff that just I just find uh, not that interesting. Hmm. Sorry, no, I'm going to get I'm going to get emails about this. <laughs> nothing to apologize for. Um, what else is there? As I said, there was the Mistborn stuff. Um, there's oh, I mean, there's Dilithium from Star Trek. Yeah, I never figured out what what that is. Is that like a new element, or is it like a weird allotrope of of lithium, or? What's going I, on? I think I think it it it's an isotrope of lithium that doesn't exist. Okay. I I believe one can't actually find, you know, dilithium on Earth. Uh, lithium just does not exist in that form, and they've just made up this form, and then it's got like magical transport powers. Um, I I think that's the case, although I have not looked into it for like years and years and years. Um, uh, I'm sure there's more. There's definitely more in definitely comments more. in the subreddit. Yeah. What, what are know. your what are your favorite fictional resources? Favorite and non-favorite, and then also, uh, yeah. Give us, oh, give us a... oh in God. in one of the China Naval books, in the Scar, there's rock milk. Rock milk. Yeah, which is like a pearly, a kind of a white pearly oil, um, and it's it's essentially, I think it's it's kind of like oil, except you get magic in, instead of instead of just like fire or whatever if you burn it. Oh yeah, like it, it's 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 like a magically infused kind of analog of oil. Rock milk is a very 
that's a very good name. It's it, like it one is. of those like uh, sort of workman-like names that you'd expect to crop up in the real world. Yeah. It, yeah. There's something very China Mavel about it. Mm. About that name. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. Let us know in the subreddit what your uh, favorite, these favorite uh, resources in fantasy and science fiction are. Yes, uh, please. And, and tell us why. And then also feel free to tell me why I'm wrong about Narnia. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Artifexian Book Club Corner, Plato's Republic, The Review. <laughs> uh, the full disclosure here, Bill, uh, Bill has, Bill failed, Bill failed, uh, basically, in his homework, and he did not read Plato's Republic, and he's let the team down, and we should all be very upset with Bill. <laughs> you should be, you should be, it's the only way I'll learn. Uh, having said that, I did not finish Plato's Republic. I read about 80% of it. In fact, almost literally 80% of it, according to the Kindle. Uh, and I tapped out after that. I was like, this is not good. <laughs> so Bill has not read it. Uh, I read I, most of it before, in right, fairness. I, re- I read a lot of it like a couple of years ago. Yeah, so Bill has not read it specifically for this recording. I have only read 80% of it for the recording. Uh, so this is largely going to be me... Uh, talking about how I feel about it and putting it to Bill and getting counterpoints, etc. Um, are you okay with that, Bill? Yeah. Cool. Uh, links to Plato's Republic in the show notes. Uh, buy it at your own peril, I guess. Um, my t- so to be in with here, my overarching feelings towards Plato's Republic is, or the Republic, whatever the hell it's called, is that I don't know enough about philosophical writing to know whether or not this is good or bad philosophical writing but as a person who just reads quote normal works this is very obtuse like this is not easy to understand or comprehend or enjoy uh it's not entertaining uh it's not fun it's barbaric like it's just it's very it's not great now uh and maybe a lot of that is down to the fact that it was written you know like uh, literally 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 thousands of years ago wouldn't it be yeah yeah thousands yeah yeah. um and so you know sensibilities change over time and this style of writing is you know gone out of fashion and ergo as a modern person it's hard to read it and enjoy it um because essentially the entire book is of the form socrates uh, who plato was writing through says a thing and then his companions uh give some sort of affirmative sentence like that is true and then he says another thing and they go oh surely and then he says another thing and they go a no no truer thing has ever been stated and then it goes on like that for hour after hour after hour it's just it's not it's not good when you read it bill did you what did you feel about the writing in the book um yeah it's it's alien um and you know th- i think that could be const- can be instructive from a world building point of view t- mm. that you know concepts of how to communicate are super different <laughs> mm-hmm. because obviously they are because it's two and a half thousand years ago why would they be the same um uh but yeah it's it's not an easy read at all um and I don't know enough about the cultural context of, of its production, but um, was it intended to be read in that mm. sense? 
Um, was it intended to be for mass distribution or is it just kind of like an account of a conversation? Because those are quite different concepts. Um, mm-hmm. Even if it's not a, a literal conversation, even if it's like intended as um, that's how people would frame the concept of reading is that they are, they are reading a report of something that happened and we will take whether it, or not it actually happened. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, doesn't really matter. Um, like, you know, as, as I understand it, a lot of poetry is kind of told, and that's, that's still the case of you're kind of to imagine someone telling it to you. And you get that with movies even still. Yeah. Um, that, you know, it's kind of being narrated to you. So it's kind of the framing of it is kind of an interesting thing to consider. I'd like to know as well whether at the time it was considered a good literary work Um, because it can be influential and still be considered not well written. Uh, Yeah. I would love to know if that were the case. Like, was Plato held up as being a good writer or was he held up as being more a good thinker who just needed to write to get his thoughts out there, but writing was almost secondary um, mm-hmm. I wonder would that be the case and again as a modern person it's really hard to interrogate that because you can't really judge it based on what you know quote good writing is uh, to the modern mind um, but yeah so essentially TLDR it was it was nine hours worth of uh, Plato circle jerking himself uh, and it was very hard to to read because it was just like, I make point, I make point, and I'm so clever about making a point. And then his comrades go, you are so clever, Socrates. Plato writing through Socrates here. And then Plato's like, let me make another point. And I'm like, so clever. He's like, oh, you were even more clever than you were five minutes ago. I just like, found it insufferable. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that's just the overall thing. Now, the actual why we read this is for the... The idea of like the, the he does uh, Plato does world building here like he the shtick is that what well, reading the book sets out to answer you know what is justice, but in doing that uh, in uh, in trying to answer that uh, Plato uh, finds it necessary to construct an entire city the just city from scratch so he does a bit of like proper world building like he world builds a city and goes through how the culture of the city would work so I'm going to go like bullet point list through these things uh, and we'll have a quick discussion about them yeah mm-hmm. okay step one <laughs> now again i need to make specific specifically clear to anyone who doesn't know about this work plato's shtick here is to make the most like the most just city a utopia the most brilliant perfect city possible keep that in in your mind as you read these what he proposes uh step one he introduces a rigid caste system uh, where people are uh, naturally, people have natural talents, he claims. Like people are just born to be good carpenters and they are, uh, society dictate that they must only be carpenters. No carpenters can go off and be warriors or rulers. You're a carpenter and that's it. And the caste system is essentially, he, there's a producer class a uh, and a military class which is divided into a militia and a ruling set um, and that's it you're not no carpenter is going to move up the ranks at all um, which to the modern mind is horrific <laughs> and I found it really yes. funny the point one let's start point one in creating utopia caste system <laughs> Um, no disagreement here. 
but like for, again from a world building point of view you know not not all uh worlds we build are uh utopias you know um so it's worth thinking about you know if you are to build a society that you you know, really wanted to pick this being wrong in some way. It's worth depicting, it's worth thinking about how you might do that. Handmaid's Tale is a good example of that. Like, the society set up in Handmaid's Tale is objectively horrific. Um, mm-hmm. And it's worth thinking, if you're going to try and do that to make a point, it's worth thinking about how how to do that. And Plato's a great resource for this. Uh, and so that's point one. Point two, uh, he, the next thing he says is that uh, he, in order for everyone to be just... He needs to, the city will need to uh, have really rigid propaganda um, and they need to, there needs to be intense censorship of art and uh, mythology. So any mythology that uh, depicts gods as being uh, capricious uh, or deceitful or sneaky cannot be told to people because people will be all like, well, it's godly to be capricious sneaky and things so they don't want people to see that so they 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 literally they restrict religion they monitor religion they censor religion and they also censor art that shows <laughs> they want to censor art that shows all any sort of weakness or anything that's not designed to create the perfect citizen is just out and he also bans poets because they're liars uh which is just <laughs> <laughs> So this is so this is point two. You are no, not I'm, more I'm, lovely than a than a summer's day. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the, it's it's worth, oh, it's worth noting that he he bans poets at the very end of the book. Now I am kind of grouping this uh, uh, out of out of chronology, but still, you know, point one and two of Utopia is rigid state-run propaganda and a caste system, and it's just like I was reading this and I was like, what? Like, is there anything in here that you're going to say, Plato, that's in any way uh, good uh, to modern sensibilities? Uh, the answer is no. Uh, so what do you think of that, Bill? I mean, I'm not a fan of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, is, there, is there an argument to be made, right? Let's, let's, just, let's just try and go with Plato a little bit here. Is there an argument to be made that you may have a fairer, perhaps, society if you were to instill caste systems and propaganda like people obviously won't be happy like the carpenter who always wanted to go to war for example it's not gonna be happy being forced to be a carpenter but is there a sort of could we argue there's a sort of streamlining effect there's sort of an efficiency of kind of like societal organization that could occur that could lead to a better fairer uh society and then in terms of the propaganda you know, uh, like, for example, we uh, Germany banned, uh, have banned Mein Kampf. Why? Because they don't want people reading it and going, I agree with this thing. He's just, he's proposing the same thing, basically myths. Like, they, there is dangerous mythology in the world, according to Plato. And he's like, let's not talk about that, lest people get dangerous ideas. Like, is there any argument made from any sort of perspective that there is anything good about what he's proposing? Um... You've got to define what you're looking for, I guess. Um, are you looking for individual in, individual happiness? Are you are you looking for uh, a, a a thing without strife? Um, you know, what are the terms here? What what is the mm-hmm. the 
the goal here. And I don't recall him yeah. doing enough to d- to define what the the intended and and the desired outcomes were. Um, now that's I mean it it grew up or it 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 was written in a time before kind of our academic understanding of philosophy, I guess. Um, where that would be, I assume, expected. Um, like. I, I I can see how if you start out with this with this goal of like okay a just city right and it's like well how do we have to do that how do we have to do that how how do we solve this problem how do we solve this problem um yeah I I I can see how you can follow a logical and reasonable chain of thought to come to these conclusions um I just don't necessarily think that's a good method for solving the problem he's trying to solve. Yeah, yeah, and I think he, I don't know, maybe I just didn't pick up on it well, but I think he does really fail to take into account the individual happiness. Like, he kind of, like, it's almost like your feelings don't matter in the face of my rationalism. And it's kind of like, well, I guess people's feelings do kind of matter because if everyone's really upset and stuff with the sort of, like, hyper-rational society that you've constructed Mm -hmm. for them, they're just going to rebel and destroy your hyper-rational society. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, but again, deal, dealing with such a, a vastly different cultural context and yeah, of course. intellectual milieu, then you know it's 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 very it's very difficult, I think, to answer a lot of these questions unless you know a fair bit about uh, Greece around the time of you know, four hundred BC or whatever. But like. Now, I know very little about this, so I'm going to c- completely show my ignorance here. Apologies, uh, everyone. Uh, but, like, did we not get our concepts of democracy from Greece? Um, and if if so, it, it kind of is a bit antithetical then for a, a Greek person to stand up and be all, like, uh, anti-democracy everything, please, you know? Um, or maybe did the Greeks not see their, their I mean, democracy as being great? And it just, you know, it just... It's stuck around long enough. We go, actually, geez, no, it is a really good idea. They just saw it as an idea. I mean, I don't think they have to have a uniformity of thought on, on, on the subject. Just just because Greek democracy existed doesn't mean every Greek agreed with it or has, has identical concepts of it. Sure. I suppose it feels very much like... So in the modern world, in general... Uh, in Western society, at least, or at least I'll just speak about Western society because that's what I'm involved in. Uh, We have a concept that equality is good. Now, we don't always achieve equality. Uh, You know, society is not equal, but like we, we, I don't think it's controversial to say that equality is good. And, you know, by extension. That's a thing that most people would, would claim to agree with. That is a thing that people would claim to agree with. Exactly. Um, It would be kind of someone in Western culture who would claim to agree with this, whether in word or in action, then writing a book being all like, down with equality. Equality is evil. Utopia has no equality whatsoever. And like, you know, it's, it feels like that uh, when reading Plato, where it's kind of like, I get that you can, you know, uh, your thoughts can deviate from the party line with regards to whether democracy is bad or, or not. But like this sort of like, utter rejection of it seems just crazy you know 
it almost seems and like like Plato is like the madman screaming screaming anarchy when everyone's kind of like, uh, no, you know, we it's pro we have our problems here, but like this is actually really great, and he's all like, no, down with everything. It just seems strange. Does does he explicitly decry democracy, or is just what he decry what he describes not? lining up with your concepts of modern or Greek democracy. He now this is the part where I'm going to get stuff wrong because uh, it's very hard to unpack his words, but uh there was a bit in the middle where he talks about the various forms of government and uh, uh my impression was uh that he didn't come out I didn't come out the end of it. I didn't come out the other end of it me going he really thinks democracy is the pinnacle of government here. Um mm -hmm. he certainly paints it as not the he paints tyranny as the worst. But I think as far as I remember, he paints democracy as being just one step removed from tyranny. And I was mm. like, I thought you guys invented, like, you know, it's like someone like Elon Musk being all like, yeah, Tesla, my car that, uh, that I've made, it's actually kind of crap. You're like, that's weird that you're say saying that, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. I find it very strange. Anywho, 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 health system. He then talks about the health system and he gets rid of the Hippocratic oath <laughs> in forming the utopia. He says that doctors uh, are mandated by the state to care for people who only have mild illnesses. Those who are chronically uh, ill should either be left to die or actually killed. And I was like, whoa. Okay, cool. And again, it it kind of does make sense, you know, because it's like the, the the beautiful utopia, everyone is healthy in it, and you're kind of like, well, if we take that to its rational conclusion, it's like let's we have to remove all the unhealthy people as soon as possible, and that kind of means like you know, mass killing, and it's really disturbing to like to read that. It's crazy. It is. It is quite disturbing to read that, um, and yeah, that that's a particularly upsetting one considering the considering the modern world <laughs> to yeah. be honest and uh, discrimination that exists in in medicine and mm. yeah yeah and, and again when view i think what i i was of two minds when reading this as well it was like uh just viewed as a piece of world building Mm -hmm. and not an advocacy piece for like like this is really how a you know a perfect society would would be uh, as a piece of world building it was kind of interesting to hear about you know to imagine this city that acts so differently to what we think cities and societies uh, act like but then that's fine and I, and that can exist in one compartment of my brain but then to think about it as no this is an actual human being saying that actually this is the perfect way to do it is just, yeah, it's, it's very, very disturbing. Um, but yeah, anyhow, so then he proposes that, uh, the rulers must be from the warrior class. So you're ruled by, uh, uh what's it? A military, what's a military government called? What's the ocracy on that? Um, militocracy. Militocracy. It's a militocracy. And uh, he says that the rulers are, must be provided state accommodations must be given no wages, must hold no private property uh, or wealth, and must be completely funded by uh, taxing the producing class. This one... This so ju one, just the, the, the upper part of the military element, the, the, the rulers specifically. Yeah, just the rulers specifically. The military okay. is broken into two. Auxiliaries are like just like your warriors, and guardians are like your ruler, rulers' rulers. And they are pulled from the military caste, in a way, 
and they're given all these benefits. This one, I kind of sort of think there's some good in this. Um, like, I kind of like the idea of the no wages thing. I kind of like the idea of no private property. And we kind of see this, like, in, in the States. I know Trump is an exception here. But in general, in the States, when you become president, you kind of, like, have to put your all your personal wealth uh, yeah. in, what's it called? Divestment. So, yeah, like that, exactly. So I think there is that kind or of... In, in, in or uh, something, yeah. Something like that. So I think that kind of is borne out in the real world, the idea that we don't kind of want uh, our leaders to be making capital gain. We want them just to be like, look, you just lead, right? Uh, I don't want you spending time, you know, on the stock market or with your property business. Uh, I, I can kind of get behind some of this idea. I don't get behind the idea of just taxing the lower class and no one else. Like that's obviously horrific. Um, Although, but, how do you how do you tax anyone who isn't productive? Oh well, I, I mean, I guess uh, Plato would have everyone be productive, and those who are not productive are like probably sick. In which case, they should be killed. But no, I mean, like if you're just if you're not producing anything, if you are military. How do you get taxed? Like, what what is being taxed? Oh no, 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 they're not getting taxed. You only you only tax the producing class. Exactly. I, I know that's, that's terrible. I'm, you're 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 saying you would rather everyone get taxed, but like oh, yeah. there is nothing to tax in the others because they are not producing anything. Yeah, well, no, I'm saying we shouldn't have a caste system to begin with. Yes. <laughs> and I'm, okay, and I'm saying- but the, the the point I'm making is there is no other possible way. From what from what you've described, there is no other way to tax. You can't tax. Oh sure, because there, there is nothing there to tax because they don't produce anything. Yeah, yeah, sure, no, I hundred percent agree with that. Uh, I suppose what I'm saying is that, like, I think the ideas of no wages, uh, no holding, no wealth, no property, and being supported by the taxpayer is an idea that can be extracted from this and applied to the modern world. F- mm-hmm. Fairly okay, is what I'm saying. Um, I don't think it works here because, like you said, the the the, the burden of taxation is uh, fundamentally unequal, um, which is no good. Uh, I, I think I think it's just it's not at all applicable because if they don't yeah. have any private wealth or property or any wages, then there's just no, they, there's nothing there to tax anyway. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um the the thing about this though, um, about no no private wealth or property, um, and this is probably a, a feature in in a lot of systems but in in theory in democracy um the the argument for having high wages for for politicians is to make them less susceptible to corruption oh oh yeah because if if you if you are struggling financially as a politician then you are more likely to be exploited by an outside force that is able to give you money so if you're if you're well paid in theory, this is, this is what the argument is. You're you're not going to be as easily influenced by uh, hostile agents or by lobbyists or whatever. I'm not entirely sure I buy that, but um... no, I, I I don't know whether I agree with it or not. But that's no. that is an argument that is made, and I, I can I can under I can follow that logical chain there. That you you know if you if. If your loyalty or your your integrity to to the state is based on getting kind of crappy pay, then 
if if a massive company is able to give you a million quid and then you're just like you're slightly more friendly to them that's a good investment for them to make and if you're able to provide for the material needs of the politicians without them needing to to go to uh other actors to 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 have wealth then that is supposed to make your democracy more secure hmm i mean it makes sense uh but i get but i guess like even if you were to give your your leader like like i'm looking at salaries here like so the u.s president gets according to wikipedia uh four hundred thousand a year yeah um, less because- than the t-shock well, not ha- pin on that. We're going to get back in a second. Uh, but like, just because you earn that, like, what's to stop, uh, you know, some oil baron or something coming over and be like, here, let me drop ten million on your lap. Like, you yeah. know, like, just because you earn a lot doesn't mean that you you can't. Uh, you, you, greed does not go away. The higher the your salary becomes, you know. Hmm. Um, according to the internet bill, because uh, you mentioned there that the Taoiseach, and this is the thing that I thought as well, the Taoiseach earns more, our prime minister earns more than the US president. Uh, but yeah. according to a very quick Google, apparently that's not the case. Oh. Uh, apparently the US, yeah, the US president earns 400,000 annually, uh, dollars, dollars, and yeah. the Taoiseach owns, earns 207,590 uh, annually oh. USD, but hang on, hold on, two hundred seventy thousand. Call it five hundred uh, euro in USD. Is yeah, just short of three hundred. He earns about a hundred grand per year less than the US president. I Why think. Why did I think that? I I don't know. Maybe the US. I don't know. Maybe things have changed. But I used to always think that as well. Uh, and uh, as well, maybe Wikipedia is wrong, as it is wont to be sometimes. Um, <laughs> the yeah, I still think those those figures are outrageous. They're outrageous. But anyhow, um, so we have blah, 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 blah. He also, there's a section where he says there should be no money in the city, which I was kind of like, what are you talking about? And I guess when he talks about taxing the producing class, he means like taxing in terms of goods uh, as yeah. opposed to money. So he outlaws money, which is just like kind of laughable. Um, he also admits that this this just city would only exist if the city were below a certain population size. So it's like he's created a utopia that's not generally applicable, which I found really, really funny. Like he's just like offhandedly goes, oh yes, and there's a major limitation to my philosophy here. Move on. And it's like, oh, hang on now, pal. <laughs> so I found that really weird. Um, he, he, he kind of advocates a sort of kind of weird communal thing with regards to the Guardians. The Guardians being the ruling class, uh, mm-hmm. where the they share literally everything, uh, accommodation, uh, spouses and children, uh, which was kind of his idea would be that he wants to destroy the idea of the family so that people wouldn't have like familial loyalty and they wouldn't be willing to fight against other families based on familial loyalty. He wanted the family to become the state, which is uh, interesting. Um, But he also kind of proposes a weird gender equality as well, like a pseudo gender equality, which took me completely by surprise because he's like, uh, he outright states that women 
are uh, completely the same as men in terms of intellect and therefore should be regarded identically. And they should be trained in the same way the men are trained, uh, which was which blew my mind. Like I was like, I didn't expect that at all. Now I read some analysis of it, and apparently, when you when you read his greater works, he he thinks he his the way he thinks is actually more like women are inferior to men, uh, but uh, by by class sort of. So like a ruling, if we take the ruling class he would imagine that men and women in that class, uh, the women would be inferior to the men. But the women in the ruling class would be superior to the men in the warrior class. So, like, he, per subdivision, the women are still lesser in his eyes. Uh, but they they have superiority over other men, given the class system. Um, okay. Which is, so it's not really gender equality, uh, but like you wouldn't know that from just reading The Republic straight off the bat. And you're hit with this moment of kind of like extreme modernism and you're like, what happened to you, Plato? Jesus Christ. So, so he's, he's sexist, but he's more classist than he is sexist. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, okay, that would be cool. Uh, <laughs> Baby <cares>. steps. <laughs> uh, and so he also says that uh, procreation uh, is not allowed outside of specific mating festivals. So the ruling class get together, I don't know, once or twice a year, and there's just a massive orgy, uh, and babies are produced. And it's also prescribed as to who you can mate with in order to kind of, like, get the best results, which is getting close to kind of eugenic sort of idea. And it's like, oh, Jesus Christ, Plato. Uh, well, he's and, he's uh, already crossed the eugenic, eugenics line with killing the sick. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not shocked at this stage. That's fair. That is entirely fair. Um... He said, so that he says, uh, what is it? Oh yeah. The, the children that are made from these, uh, orgies are, the orgies is not fair. I mean, I, I get the idea in my head that they all just gather in some sort of like communal bathhouse and just go to town, but it's, they're probably allowed to procreate in their own rooms, you know, in private or whatever, but it just, it happens at a prescribed time of the year. Uh, the children that are, uh, born of these mating festivals are seized from the families never told who their parents are and like parented by everyone and like again here's the thing that i think that is brutal and just cold rationalism without any concept for how humans actually work but the kind of idea of like the village raising a child is actually thing i can kind of get on board with not in the way he presents it but in the way of kind of like thinking about the familial unit as not being nuclear but being more expansive I think is a good thing mm-hmm. um, so there was a slight bit of like Plato I'm kind of with you there but like not really with the eugenics mating festivals to be fair <laughs> like uh, three out three out of five of your points are, I, I agree with but the last two are kind of genocide <laughs> yeah, so <I> <laughs> Uh, he also says that in the just city everyone is just like perfectly rational so there's no laws at all and people the rulers are just like perfect and they'll just make perfect assessments of what to do at any given moment so there's no need for formal laws and that was a thing he seriously proposed in the book which was uh, kind of idiotic and I would imagine even idiotic at the time like when did anyone ever go no laws a plus like no um we don't exactly have that but i'm actually i'm just gonna i'm gonna get the name of it here um 
the the Mongol code of law was called Yasa. Mm-hmm. And it was in the the, the whole Mongol Empire. Um, and I think it was codified, but it was secret. So the laws existed, but no one knew what they were except like those enforcing them. Um, so they could be selectively applied. Um, Mongol law sounds weird, but again, the Mongols are weird. And the usual caveat with most of these things is uh, when you say anything about world history and how things work, you always go, eh, except for the Mongols. <laughs> uh, so uh, I guess that applies here to a degree. Finally, finally, uh, Plato says that in order for all this to work, the the head ruler, the king, must be, has to be, must be a philosopher. Uh, anyone else, and the whole system breaks down. And not only that, he says that the he has to the the person has to be a philosopher, a true philosopher, not like the philosophers that are knocking around uh, uh, Greece when Plato was alive. Not like any of those charlatans. No, no, the true philosopher. And I just felt like kind of saying to him, "But are you not engaging in that fallacy that people on the internet love to point out, the true Scotsman fallacy? You know, where it's like." Only a true philosopher. It's like, well, show me it. What is a true philosopher? It's nonsense, like. And also, like, the notion of kind of like, it just seems so hacky that, like, a philosopher writes a thing about how to best form a society and he puts philosophers at the very top. And you're like, well, obviously you do that, you silly git. Like, oh. yeah, yeah. He's just a shill for big philosophy. He's just a shill for big philosophy. Exactly, yeah. Uh, he mentions uh, he mentions that the way that things work is that, and I kind of agree with some of this part as well, that they must be trained in, from a very early age, these philosopher kings have to be trained in math. Uh, non uh, It's non-compulsory and the math has to be uh, given to these people or these math lessons have to be given to the young philosopher kings as play so they don't associate with like school. And I think that's great. I think that's really cool. Like the idea of like educate through experience and not through like rope memorization of boring textbooks. I was like, sure. I'm on board. And the fact that he holds math, math up as kind of a very important thing. I was like, yeah, totally. Um, and there's also, oh, he also, sorry, throughout the whole book, he also impresses the importance of learning music. Uh, as a counteract, uh, a counteraction to physical stuff. So when you learn the art of war, you also need to be skilled in music because that like balances the soul. And I can kind of get on board with that as well. Um, okay. The idea, yeah. like, I suppose I'm biased because I study music, but I think everyone should learn or everyone should at least go to a music lesson once at least when they're young, even if and you have no intention of ever becoming a musician. It's just good for you. Yeah, and I'm biased because I study war, but I think everyone should be able to form a phalanx. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> exactly um so yeah the philosopher king begins with maths uh then he moves on to compulsory physical training to train for war mm -hmm. after that when he becomes like i think it was in the 20s or something he get, moves on to uh philosophy and then what i think is really interesting after that he does like a mandatory sort of uh, time on the field and apprenticeship he has to go to war he has to hold some sort of office he has to like you know, have practical experience, which I think was, was kind of cool. And then after that, if they survive all these trials, uh, he gets the rule. Uh, once the person is, when the person dies, the philosopher king dies, according to Plato, he must be worshipped as a demigod. <laughs> it's like, if ever it was a philosopher writing philosopher propaganda, this is it right here. 
That's class. In the, in the perfect world, I would be a king, and when I die, I would be a demigod. It's just, oh, it's awful. Um, and then, uh, final thing, final thing, he says, uh, he says one of his, um, uh, provocateurs or whatever, one of the people who are, uh, provoking him and giving him counterpoints, uh, was like, yeah, okay, that's great and all, uh, Socrates, but, um, how this can't ever happen in the in the real world. And then instead of going, no, it's just a wonderful thought experiment, he goes, no, it could happen in the real world. What we'd have to do is, and he says this apparently with all seriousness, we'd have to go into a, existing, an existing city, sack the city, banish everyone who is over 10 years old, kidnap all the under 10-year-olds and raise them as outlined in this book. And then it would work. And I was like, what? What? Like, why even go there? Just go. Obviously, it wouldn't work because humans aren't perfect. We can't have the perfect city because we aren't perfect. That's the obvious way. But then he goes to, no, here's a detailed plan as to how to actually enact this. And it involves, like, just horrific, horrific war crimes. Yeah, because, like, nine-year-olds won't hold grudges of, of having having witnessed an ethnic cleansing. I just, it's, it's just crazy. It's just crazy. Oh, actually, speaking of ethnic cleansing, uh, cleansing, one final point I forgot to mention. In war, they're taught that uh, when w- if they uh, win, uh, he wants the state to act in such a way that uh, they, are, they show mercy uh, to the people they defeat. If those people are Greek, if they're not, do whatever you want. And he didn't explicitly say it, but it sounded very much like, we need more of them slaves. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> so yeah, in summation, it's a, actually, it's a, it's, it's a fun dystopian, oh, it's not fun. It's a dystopian bit of world building a society, how to build a society that to our modern sensibilities is so horrifically dystopian. Uh, from that perspective, it's fun to engage in. Not fun to think that a person once thought that this is out good way to organize society yeah i was always kind of like from when i read it before amused that the setup is right we're gonna lads we're gonna make a perfect society okay and then i was like yeah okay cool what do we do evil (laughs) just do loads of evil and then we have a perfect society uh yep um I, i have a couple of points do it do it sorry i was talking so much i'm sorry that's absolutely fine. Um, a good word I, I found here, like, apparently militocracy isn't a word, or at least it's not listed on the, the frontistory list of forms of government. Um, but what they do have is a hoplarchy, which I think is quite good. Is that, do you think that's uh, uh, related to like hoplites? Almost definitely. Almost definitely. Good call, yeah. Edgar. Um, I guess there's also a junta. Uh, is is a sort of a more contemporary term for a a military ruling class, mm. um, uh, but a hoplarchy, I guess, is the more culturally appropriate one here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, or stratocracy mm. for military rule. Um, I, I, I like the one that sounds like the hoplite. It's fun. Yeah, I I much prefer that. I much prefer oh. that. Um. I would be interested in like a a sort of response piece of uh, an a character encountering a city run along these lines. That could be an interesting piece of writing. 
Oh, I see. Okay, so like write a rebuttal to it, but in the style of Plato's Republic, basically. No, no, not necessarily in in the same style, but like as in a piece of fiction where um, the character, where Edgar, the the traveler Edgar, enters the Republic and sees how the mm. how it works. Um, you know, as a piece of like direct fiction. That's that's um, a really good idea. I wonder, does, I wonder, does such a thing exist? That would be an interesting concept. That's gotta, because surely people have been writing rebuttals of it uh, for literally thousands of years. You'd imagine. I mean, one someone... would hope. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, oh dear, God, I hope so too. Oh, um, a quick thing. I the allegory of the cave. I was aware of that as a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did not realize it came from the Republic. It's in this book. Yeah. Yeah, I remember I didn't that. Know yeah. that. Or at least I, I, I th- was vaguely aware of that. I thought, I thought that was the case. Yeah. Um, do you have any other points? Um, yeah, like it's as, as I said, understanding the motivation is is probably the interesting thing here, and a lot of that will be cultural and and assumed, I guess. Um, and yeah, there are there are. There are concepts here where you can say, you know, you nearly you're nearly onto something there if just it wasn't evil. <laughs> if 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 you could take out the the democide and the genocide, um, you know, maybe like there there's a kernel of of a concept here about uh, state accommodation, or you know, oh mm-hmm. yeah, maybe de-emphasizing the, the or not not so much a de-emphasis, but an increased emphasis on community in mm. in the raising of children um mm. but yeah it's uh, I, I i'm really curious is it intended to be taken at face value mm. yeah that's yeah also just sorry to add to your list of things that are kernel of truth there i think no poets we can all get behind that as well <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, i mean it, it's it's not an art form i myself understand but i i bear it no hostility yeah i wonder is it meant to be taken Seriously, I don't know, but like, I, I don't, I don't ever get the impression that it was written as a piece of satire by him, um, or as as a provocation, maybe to 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 consider oh, yeah. things like how apparently um, is it the, the prince is the one by Machiavelli, um, is yep. sure. widely considered to, or many people consider that it's it's kind of satirical, or it's not meant to be taken at face value. It is it is a critical work, um, that has been misinterpreted. That is an interpretation, anyway. Yeah, I suppose the only last thing to do is to set the next bit of reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, next bit of reading, I was thinking, would be uh, The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemison, which uh, has been which has been mentioned on the show before. It's the one that has the sort of, like, uh, volcanic world-building slant to it. That's uh, where it came up, yes. Mm-hmm. And so the listener who, who emailed us that before uh, piqued my curiosity enough to set it and i think it'd be nice catharsis after plato's republic to read something that's actually just like a nice a story as opposed to like philosophical circle jerking uh and making yourself the king of everything (laughs) uh so fifth the fifth season by nk jemison uh i'll leave a link in the show notes you can pick it up if you want and read along we'll probably get out not next month but the month after Mm -hmm. and yeah that was artifacts in book club a book club corner. My my timer is saying two hours, 50 minutes. Uh, we've been here for a while. 
I think we might need to wrap this up, Bill. Yeah, I think we'll call. I'm I'm at two twenty six, so that's about a two a two hour episode accounting for the for the gap. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Um, listeners, as always, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, thanks for supporting on Patreon. You can go pick up some merch using the links in the description. Donate some money to causes this month. Uh, donate to Black Lives Matter bail funds, mutual aid funds. Um, if you're interested in Irish issues, donate to the movement of asylum seekers in Ireland. Um, look after yourselves and your communities. Yeah, I throw for the for the Americans uh, in uh, listening. I would throw equal justice equal justice initiative as a place to donate. Uh, I've heard enough people online who I admire talk about it as being a place that's a, a good, useful place to don- to, to donate to. Uh, so I, I'm going to throw it in the show notes as well, so you can uh, have a look there. Um, yeah, I hope we provided some degree of entertainment and relief from these terrible, terrible times. And yeah, here's hoping we all progress to a better, brighter, more equal future. We can only hope. Yep.